Let's keep going on, uh, on Romans here, and we're going to do chapter 13, so uh, we just have a couple of chapters left after this one, and, uh, and Romans, you know, it's just so amazing. Uh, again, the, the big theme, I just want to never forget that. Uh, I was uh, looking at a co- some commentary stuff again this, this week, and, and, uh, and I saw some pastors again who, who spent uh, eight, nine, and ten years in the, in the book of Romans. So again, my goal in Romans, there's, there's so much here. Uh, many pastors have spent, you know, years and years and years just preaching through the book of Romans. But my, my goal in this series has been to do broad strokes so that we can remember the key things and that we don't lose the forest for the trees. And so, again, we want to remember that the first 11 chapters of Romans is all about this glorious salvation, this gift of salvation from God to us, justification by faith. You can't work for your salvation. You can't earn it. It's absolutely a free gift from God, and uh, you can only get it by faith, and that is just a wonderful truth. And then the last five chapters of Romans after chapter 11 is basically how do we respond to that incredible gift? So the first 11 chapters, if you don't have the first 11 chapters, you can't live the last five. And the last five are not supposed to be about legalism. They're supposed to be the heart response to an amazing, generous gift, God giving us salvation. And out of gratitude, now we live lives of love and, and service and all that. And so we come to chapter 13. Now, the interesting thing about Romans is, as we found as we've been going through this series, is like Paul just covers this gift of justification has implications for all aspects of life. And so it covers, he covers a wide uh, range of topics. And so today we come in chapter 13, and the whole discussion is about our relationship as Christians to the government. And how is a Christian supposed to relate to the government uh, in their country? And so uh, it seems many, uh, uh, many commentators and many preachers over the years and many Christians have read this chapter and kind of gone like, what? Like, what does this have to do? We're talking about justification. And then chapter 12 is this amazing chapter of be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and you got to love people and serve, and we spent a couple of weeks there. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, boom, uh, submit to the government. And it just seems to a lot of people like it's a bit disjointed, uh, but it isn't. And we're going to see that in just a moment. But let me just uh, read to you the first seven verses first, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. Romans 13, verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this letter to the Romans. It is brilliant. It is glorious. It spells out for us what the Christian life is based on, your free gift, generous gift to us. And out of that, our response to you and what the Christian life should look like. Empower us by your Holy Spirit 
to live these words out, to truly become a church that lives these words. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So like I said, again, uh, to many people over the centuries, this passage has seemed just a little bit random. We're talking about all kinds of important stuff and justification and loving people and serving and all this sort of stuff. And then suddenly, this whole big thing on paying taxes and how do you relate to the government. And the thing I want you to know today is it is not random. It's the most comprehensive passage in the New Testament that addresses the relationship between us as Christians and the government. And I wonder how different Christian history, I, I, I really do, I wonder how different Christian history would look if the Holy Spirit had not inspired Paul to put this little passage in there. And the reason I say that is there's a, there is a strong link. The reason this is not random. Chapter 13 is not random. Recall that two weeks ago, uh, last week we just took a, a one-week break from the Romans series there on Mother's Day, but two weeks ago when, when I talked about the second half of, of Romans 12, we looked at this important verse. Uh, Romans 12, verse 9, we looked at, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And we talked about that, this charge that Paul has given us, that as Christians who have the Spirit of God in us, it is, it, there is no other response for a person who is filled with the Spirit of God to evil than to abhor it, than to hate it. As Christians, it is, not, it is not even an option for us to ignore evil. It is not an option for us to just dislike evil or to downplay evil. We, are, we who are filled by the Spirit of God must utterly detest evil. We must fight against it. We must stand against it. We must fight for good. We must hold fast to good. So we talked about that. That's Romans 12. Now, so where does Romans 13 come in? I'll tell you where Romans 13 comes in and why it's not random. Romans 13 gives us the boundaries for how we abhor evil. Really important, okay? So think about this, and this is why I say I wonder how Christian history would look different if we didn't have Romans 13 there, because imagine that Paul only said you have to abhor evil, okay? Now again, that word abhor does not mean dislike. It doesn't mean, you know, just don't like it, just be uncomfortable with it. It means utterly detest. Imagine if Paul had said, you know, gives us the charge, you've got to abhor evil, and now a bunch of zealous Christians go out there and they say, we're going to abhor evil, but there's no boundaries there on how do we abhor evil. And what you could get very quickly, and in fact, what has sometimes happened at various points in Christian history, in fact, you should know that just, uh, that they don't know exactly, five or six years before, or seven years, somewhere in there, somewhere between five and ten years before Paul wrote the book of, of Romans, the, the Romans had actually kicked all of the Christians and Jews out of the city of Rome. And there's some little debate. So the, the, the book of Romans was written somewhere 56 or 57 AD, and somewhere around 50 AD, just a few years before that, the Romans had kicked all the, the Christians and Jews out of Rome. There's some little debate. We're not totally sure all the reasons why. We just know that it had to do with disturbances. The Romans didn't like disturbances. And uh, a lot of commentators and scholars believe that on the Christian side of things, one of the reasons there was disturbances is because there was strong messianic fervor. That these Christians, so imagine, you know, you imagine you're a Roman citizen and all you know is, you know, you, the Caesar is king. And now you hear about this Jesus and he's king. And now you get excited about him being your king and he's coming back. And now you look at this evil Roman king that, and you think to yourself, why do I have to obey him? And there was disturbances. Okay, and now in a few years since then, the church had taken hold again back in Rome, and there was Christians again in Rome and all sorts of stuff. Now Paul writes this letter to them, and he says it's really important. 
Absolutely, someone who is filled by the Spirit of God is going to hate evil. If you don't abhor evil and you don't stand against evil, it's suspect whether you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, Because if you're filled with the Spirit of God, you're going to hate what he hates. So he puts that out there, abhor evil and hold fast to what is good. But then in chapter 13, he comes and says, hold oh, but one second, one second. Okay, It's really important that in your abhorring of evil, you're not just a bunch of lunatics running around creating anarchy and chaos. That's what chapter 13 is all about. Okay, And it's really important. Okay, And so again, you know, uh, if all we had was chapter 12, you know, and you didn't have boundaries on it, you know, you could have Christians who are zealous, and you go out and, well, you know, we hate evil, we hate pornography, it's destroying people's lives, so do we go and burn down buildings where they sell pornography or where they make pornography? And the answer in chapter 13 is, absolutely not. And you know, every now and then we hear about these, these lunatics, and I mean that, they're, they're crazy people who call themselves Christian, Christians every now and then, and they'll do some act of violence in an abortion clinic because they think, because they're, they're just so abhorred with evil, and it is evil. Abortion is evil. It's killing babies. But then they think that doing some act of violence there is okay, and chapter 13 says, absolutely, it's not okay. I mean, first of all, if you're filled with the Spirit of God, you shouldn't even want to do something like that because we want to overcome evil with good, not with evil. But chapter 13 puts the clear boundary on it that, yes, we must abhor evil. That is, that is not an option as believers. And then there are many believers today that have walked away from that one. Let's just let evil slide. It's easier that way. Paul says you're not allowed to do that. You've got to walk the hard road. You've got to abhor it. But you've got to do it in such a way that you still respect the governing authorities and the laws of the land. Does that make sense? So that's where Romans 13 and Romans 12 go hand in hand. They give us the hard road. Hate evil, but do it within the bounds of the law while honoring the government and while honoring the laws of the land, okay? And so we, we read verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. We are to be subject to the laws of the land. Abhor evil, yes. But do it in such a way that we are subject to the authorities and the laws of the land. And I want you to notice the second thing that Paul says here, which is obvious to those of us who have lived all of our lives in the West, but it's still a really important truth that I want to point out here in terms of using violence and stuff to, to fight against evil. In verses 3 and 4, Paul says this, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And uh, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. And I want you to notice there that Paul clearly says that it is the government that bears the sword, not the church. Okay? Now again... Those of us who've grown up in the West, our civilization is, in large part, was founded on these principles. Uh, part of the reason it's wonderful to live in the West and not wonderful to live in many other places in the world. But I digress, okay? But because our civilization was, in large part, built on this book, we just assume that. That's not news to any of you that the church shouldn't bear the sword. The government should. But, I mean, you go into many other countries today. You go into some of the strict Muslim countries they have religious police there, people who, um, who, who, you know, they can drive around in trucks and they can walk around the streets and they can act, commit acts of violence against people who they see breaking their moral lies, uh, laws or whatever. And you only need to go to a country like that for not very long to appreciate what we have here in the West, that it's the government that bears the sword. It's not, you know, just Christians just running around doing whatever they want. God has created both institutions, the institution of government and the institution of the church, and they do 
two different things. They're both important, okay? And so it's the government. He says, you Christians, I don't want you going out and shooting a drug dealer because they're doing something wrong and they're hurting the kids. It's your job to love and, and pray for that person and minister to that person. It's the government's job to take care of crime, okay? Very clear distinction between the church and the government. So again, this is all tying back to Romans 12 where it says abhor evil. We've got to abhor evil within the bounds of the law, recognizing that it's the government's job to punish crime and it's the church's job to minister to people and advance the gospel, all that sort of stuff, okay? So there's a boundary here. Chapter 13 flowing together with chapter 12. And I'll just put a couple of things up there. As Christians, we are supposed to abhor and hate evil and just because I just want to make things clear, okay? Sometimes I preach a message that I think is really clear and then right, this happens to me, you know, more often than I like to admit and then I go out after the message and someone says, ask me a question and I'm like, it's exactly the opposite of what I just said. So I just want to make sure we have this, okay? So we abhor evil, but we don't take justice into our own hands or use violence. We fight evil, but we do it from within the bounds of the law. We work within the system of law and governance to fight evil. We don't fight to destroy the system. Does that make sense? That's how Romans 13 and 12 uh, go together. And the reason for all of this is because the institution of government was given to us by God for our good. And that's what it says there in verse 4. For he, that's the ruler, is God's servant. I just highlighted it in there in yellow so it sticks out. For he, speaking of the ruler of the government, is God's servant for your good. And this is true even of bad government. This is true even of bad government. Um, when Paul says that, this, he is fully aware. He is living in an empire where the Caesar is a terrible, evil person. Okay, Paul is not naive here. He's not, he's not living in utopia thinking that all governments are made up of wonderful people, he's living in an empire where the government actually was evil, like literally evil, okay? And yet he says that the government is God's servant for our good. And that is true. Even when the government does not follow God, which is almost all the governments, if not all the governments here on the earth, the government is still for our good. There are many benefits from the government, and Paul experienced them even in the Roman Empire. He experienced life where there were roads, where there was an army that kept, you know, bandits at bay. And so even a bad government brings many benefits into our lives, helps us, you know, uh, to travel, to have economic activity, you know, roads and infrastructure and hospitals and all those sorts of things. Even when the government is bad, a government keeps evil and chaos and anarchy at bay, even if it's an evil government. Does that make sense? So it's not that God approves. When Paul says this, and some people go too far the other way when they, when they read Romans 13, and, uh, and it's almost like they, did, they can't even imagine. It's just like we have to respect the government so much that now we can't even see its flaws. Paul is not talking here about not seeing the government's flaws. What he's talking about is that the institution of government even if the people in government are rebellious and wicked, the institution of government was placed there by him in order to protect us. I, I mean, you look, at, you look at places in the world where the government breaks down, places like in years past Somalia or Syria today or Iraq and various places, and, and th those places where there's anarchy are the worst places in the world to live. Isn't that true? So even a bad government, the institution of government was invented by God for our good. And it doesn't mean that God does not see the evil and the wickedness or that we shouldn't see the evil and wickedness of the people in government or the things that they do. It just means that even when they are evil, we still benefit from them. And it also doesn't mean that God won't judge 
government leaders. When it says that they're his servant, he's not talking so much about those people thinking they're serving him. He's talking about the institution of government serving his purposes to make life better for us. And it doesn't mean he won't, uh, he won't judge the leaders of the world. There's many scriptures, there's many passages of scripture that talk about him, that the godless leaders of this world will one day give an account to him for the injustices, for the evil laws, and for the selfishness, and all those other sort of stuff. And he will personally judge the leaders of this world for not stewarding their commission in a godly way. But even within that, the system of government, the institution of government is something that we need. And this is really important because some people, if you just read Romans 13, Paul doesn't make any caveats here. He just says, obey the government. And you can almost get this idea where it's like, we just got to obey the government no matter what, okay? And if this was the only passage of scripture in the Bible that talked about this subject, we might have to, we might, if this is all we had on the government, then we might have to think, I guess it doesn't matter how bad the government is, we have to obey them no matter what. But the truth of the matter is, Whenever we're making decisions about life and theology, we always have to look at this book as a whole, not just one single passage. Because in one single passage, Paul can't hit every single possible possibility. He's hitting one possibility. He's putting boundaries on us as we abhor evil. But if we look at the rest of Scripture, we will find that there are many, there are many instances in here of people disobeying the government. For example, Daniel. A couple of times in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1 Nebuchadnezzar says, you're going to eat this. And Daniel says, I can't eat that. That's against the, the scriptures. I'm not going to eat. I'm going to eat vegetables. He disobeys. Five chapters later in Daniel 6, uh, the king says, uh, you're not allowed to pray. And what does Daniel do? We're going to look at that in just a couple minutes. He prays. Okay, he disobeys. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, obviously, Nebuchadnezzar says, bow down to the statue. Absolutely not. And into the fiery furnace they go, Right? Uh, there's the Hebrew midwives. Why don't we look at the Hebrew midwives? I wanted to look at that one. I think it's very relevant to us today. I'm just going to get a little sip of water here. Give us all a break. Exodus chapter 1, verse 15. Another example of civil disobedience. God's people disobeying the king. Exodus 1, verse 15. And the reason I think this is relevant is because it has to do with abortion. So that's why I wanted to put it up there. But... Exodus 1, verse 15, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra, and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, you shall, she shall live. So sex-selective abortion right there. This is a very relevant story. Okay? And if all we had was Romans 13, you might say, well, God just wants them to obey no matter what. But I want you to see what these Hebrew midwives do. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So they outright refused, we will not obey a law like that. We will not obey a law that says we have to, um, have to perform an abortion. And I want you to notice why they didn't do it. If we just underline the two words there, right there, because they feared God. Because they feared God more than Pharaoh, they refused to obey Pharaoh in this instant. And what does God say and what does God do with them as a result? Verse 20, so God dealt well with the midwives. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. What about the apostles and Acts? I'm just taking, we can look at many examples. I'm just going through here. 
Because I want to make sure, again, as we read Romans 13, we've got to have a balanced and holistic view. How, does a, how as Christians do we relate to the government? And uh, the apostles in Acts chapter 5, the uh, governing authorities told them to stop talking about Jesus. And so they said, absolutely, we won't. And verse 27, we see this. And when they, the Jewish leaders, had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in his name. Again, a relevant example, don't you think? Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, there's the disobedience. They had been told, stop talking about Jesus publicly. Stop talking about Jesus publicly. And here's what Peter says. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So there's just a few examples. I could show you many more. I want to just, just organize them for you just to make it just to make it simple, because this, this message, I, I really want to just condense it down to the, just to, to, to kind of give an overview of, of what is the relationship of a Christian to the government. And so I want to show you four categories when God expects us as Christians to, to disobey the government. And the first one is we need to refuse to obey laws that forbid us from praying or from practicing our faith. And so Daniel 6, I alluded to it before, but let me just read you uh, two verses here. Verse 10 um, the king says to stop praying. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, so he knew it was now a law, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. So point number one, the king made a law. Daniel knows it's been signed. Like, that's the whole point there. When he knew the document had been signed. The whole point here is he's not doing this by accident. He knows it's been signed into law, and he goes and he prays anyway. Now, here's the, here's the, the part that I find so fascinating is, how did these guys find him? How did these guys find him praying? You know, the, re the reason I ask this is because I was trying to think, how would many Christians today disobey this law? I think many of us today, if we were to disobey this law, this is how we would do it. Oh yeah, that's not good. I want to keep praying to God. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do it over in the corner here when nobody's looking. I love you, Jesus. Or maybe, maybe I'll even do it with my eyes open. Jesus, I'm praying to you. Right? I think that's how a lot of Christians say would have done it. Because we'd go, well, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to obey this law, but I don't want to, I, I don't want to get in trouble either. And that's not a very good testimony if we all get in trouble for stuff. So I'm just going to pray. You know what? I think with the way a lot of us Christians are today, there would be no Daniel and the lion's story. Because if a lot of Christians today had been Daniel back then, that's exactly what they would have done, and they would never have gotten caught. I think if there was, I think of a lot of Christians, if you would take, supplant a lot of Christians from today in the West and put them into the Bible characters' shoes in the Old Testament, we'd have like none of the good stories. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, don't bow down to the idol. Oh, quickly I'll bow down, but I still love you, Jesus. That's what a lot of Christians would have done today. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, absolutely not. As a result, they went to the fiery furnace. I think many Christians today, that they went back in time, there's no fiery furnace, there's no lion's den, because we would, we would just be afraid. And we'd go along with it. But what does Daniel do? How did they find him? He didn't go into a corner and pray privately. He refused to let them force him into privatizing his faith. 
He went back to his room just like he always does, did, threw open the windows, and he must have prayed out loud. So they caught him, and he did it three times in the day still. That's the only reason we have a lions in the den story. So he's not being disrespectful. He's not being rude. He's not being aggressive. He's not being defensive. He's not being an idiot. But at the same time, he refuses to say, my belief in God is just a private matter that I'll keep to myself. Do you see the difference? He's not a crazy maniac abhorring evil in stupid ways. He's not shooting at people. He's not swearing at the king. He's not ranting. He's also not just going, my belief in God is just between me and God and I'll hide it. And as a result, they found him. And they threw him in the, in the lion's den. But anyway, we need to refuse laws that forbid us from praying and practicing our faith. Second, we need to refuse to obey laws that command us to be silent about the truth. And we go to Acts 4 again to see the apostles in the New Testament. And uh, I just enjoy this story. So I just want to take a moment and, and uh, zip through it. And as they, the disciples, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. I love this. I love it. That, that's why I had to do the story. Greatly annoyed. They came to them greatly annoyed. Now, do you ever get the sense that in our culture today, people are greatly annoyed with us? Do you ever get that sense? Is that relevant at all to us here in Steinbach? I think it might be, okay? They were greatly annoyed. Like, why do you guys believe those things? Stop it already. It's not modern. It doesn't match up with reality. It's not politically correct. Why do you have to talk about that? Why can't you keep that private. Why do you let that inform the decisions and the actions that you make and the things that you talk about? They're greatly annoyed with us. They were greatly annoyed with them too. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And so they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. And I'm just skimming some of the verses just to get through a little bit quicker. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done by, to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved. This is the root of why they get so annoyed at us. That's the root of it right there. Because the core of our message, which we refuse to hide, and the reason we refuse to hide it is because we love people. And the only way for people to be saved from certain death and judgment is for them to accept Jesus. There is not another way for them to be saved. So because we love them, we refuse to be silent about the exclusivity of the claims of Jesus. That there is no one else. There is no other religion that saves you. There is no other morality than the one he commands in here. We cannot change that. We will not change it, and we won't hide it. And because we won't hide it, and because we say it's exclusive, that he is the only way, and that his law is the only law, they are greatly annoyed at us. Just like they were greatly annoyed at them. Verse 18. 
So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Like, would you guys just be quiet already? But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than uh, to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot speak of what we have, but of what we have seen and heard. They tell them to be quiet. Peter and John said, we cannot be silent. Now, I should just take a time out here for just one moment. This, again, does not mean that there's never a time to be strategic. This doesn't mean that there's never a time to be, that there might be a, a season or a time or in a place to be strategic, to be quiet. This doesn't mean that there's never a time God will come and tell you, just like Jesus did in the Gospels at times, there was times when he didn't say who he was. So this doesn't mean that there's never a time to, to go incognito. But here's what it does mean. We never go quiet because of the fear of man. We do it because we're trying to advance his kingdom. And he's showing us that in this season, this is what we have to do. There's a huge difference between that. A lot of Christians just want to go quiet because of the fear of man. They just want to be quiet because it's easier. They want to be quiet because there's less troubles that way. There's less persecution. There's less hate. There's less of that greatly annoyed. We refuse to be quiet for those reasons. There may be a time in certain cases to be strategic as God leads. That's fine. But in that case, even where you're being quiet because it's strategic, you're being quiet out of a burning passion to advance his kingdom. And you can hardly wait till the day when you can advance it and when you can speak about it. And so we look at what happens next. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lift... Now, I love this. When they heard it, so what did they do? The priest said, you're going to be in trouble. We're coming for, me, for you. Uh, you know, you better be quiet. And so the apostles went back and they said to the church, you know what, guys? We're just a little too radical. We have to tone it down. We're not going to be so exclusive. We're going to maybe change some of our beliefs. We're going to change this and that. That's not at all what they did. You know what they did? They got together and they prayed. They had a prayer meeting. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That their first reaction as a church was to get together and pray. Now that's a church. Now that's a church. Their first reaction, when the pressure and the heat went up, their first reaction as a church was not to, in their, in their human reasoning, try and figure out a way to make things easier. Their reaction was to get together and pray. That is what a church should do. And that is what I pray more and more our church is doing and will do. Uh, it's a big part of the reason why we have prayer summits and consider them to be our most important meetings. But, and now I also want you to look what they pray for. This is amazing. So they get together and pray. Verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to escape from the persecution. That's what they pray, right? And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants the permission to just compromise and life will be easier for us. No. Look at what they pray. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Now that is a different prayer than a lot of prayers that we in the West would pray today. Isn't that true? See, there's, there's two kinds of churches you can have. You can have a church that is fully in love with Jesus and passionate about advancing his kingdom. A church like that prays this. Give us the power to speak boldly because what they love is Jesus and what they want to see is his kingdom get bigger. You can also have a church like many in the West today 
that instead of loving Jesus and being passionate for his kingdom, they actually love this world and are passionate for their own comfort. A church that is passionate for this world or passionate for their own comfort and in love with this world prays more prayers, and not that it's bad to some of us pray these prayers, but their prayers more center around not advancing the gospel and empower us to do it, but more around keep us safe and keep us comfortable. The prayers are more, make them, like, just, we just want to have it easier, and that's not what they pray here. They pray for boldness, boldness. And then verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And that's, that's just what I believe this country needs is a generation of spirit-filled, renewed Christians, right? That's what church renewal is all about, is, a, is, a, is churches that are renewed and filled with the Spirit of God and empowered and they're passionate prayer and they're all in love with Jesus and they're, and they're passionate more about advancing his kingdom than they are about having a comfortable life. Anyway, the third kind of law we must refuse to obey is laws that command us to do immoral things. So we looked at the Hebrew midwives already. A law that says you must perform abortions, a believer says, I will not. I will not perform abortions. I will not help or assist to perform abortions. And there's many other relevant things. I will not help to kill people. You know, otherwise known as assisted suicide or assisted homicide, sometimes referred to maybe better. Euthanasia. There's just certain things we refuse to do, even if it's uncomfortable. We refuse to do things that are immoral for us to do. And a fourth kind of law, I won't spend much time here, but a fourth kind of law that we must refuse to obey are laws that demand we participate in occult activity or rituals involving the worship of other gods. This one may not seem like a big deal in our country right now, but you would be surprised more and more how various forms of spirituality and participating in exercises of that uh, spirituality are increasingly parts of the things that Christians are expected to do or people are expected to do in order to participate in various areas of whether the economy or whatever. And, uh, and God just says, you just, you just can't do that. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we just will not bow down. And so we go back to Romans 13. So we've kind of looked at, I thought Romans 13 was about obeying the government and we just spent 10 minutes talking about all the times we should disobey the government. Okay, the point is, Romans 13, Paul isn't giving us every possibility. His point is that obeying the government is supposed to be our default. Obeying, what I just showed you now are the extreme instances. Those are the times when, when, when you don't obey the government, but Romans 13 tells us that obeying the government should be our default. It should be our desire, okay? In fact, part of our obedience to God is obeying the government. And then remember again, I have to go back, let's go back to the early church. Remember that the statement, because it sort of lost its power for us. Remember that the statement, Jesus is king, is a political statement. We've kind of lost that in North America because we just say it all the time and we just, we just know, or it's just sort of become this thing. It doesn't really have much power to us. Oh yeah, Jesus is king, but we don't think of it in political terms. Um, he is actually coming back and he is going to be in charge. And that's a political statement. And in the early church, it was a very political statement. Because again, you're a Roman citizen, and you think Caesar is king. And now someone comes and tells you, Jesus is king. The Romans don't like that. Okay? Jesus is king is a political statement. So again, imagine that you're not a westernized Christian, but you're uh, uh, an early believer, and someone comes along and says, Jesus is king. Now, how do I obey Jesus 
when this king over here is so wicked, and you can see how many zealots would be, would, could, be, could, could come to think that obeying Jesus is something I do instead of obeying my earthly king. If Jesus is my king, maybe I'm supposed to obey him now instead of this earthly king. And Paul's point in chapter 13 is to bring the earthly king under the, under the king of this universe, Jesus, and say our obedience to this king is not instead of obedience to Jesus, it's part of our obedience to Jesus. Part of our, our obedience to our earthly government is part, part and parcel of our obedience to Jesus. And we looked at a little bit of this before, but if we go back to verse 4, for he, your earthly ruler, is God's servant. Speaking again of the institution of government, okay? Really, really important. For he is God's servant for your good. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For this, for because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. And Sarah, you can just put up the next verse. Verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So now I want to just tie all this together now. And how does this look? Paul wasn't living in a democracy. Okay? Paul was living in Rome. And this is the thing with this book. This book is thousands of years old, and it's written in specific places at specific times. So we've got to take the principles from there. Paul didn't live in a democracy where he could vote. So how does chapter 13 and chapter 12, abhorring evil and respecting the government, how does that work out in a society, a modern society like ours that is democratic? And I just want to give you a few principles. What does this mean in a democracy? How do we fight against evil, and yet how do we honor the government? Okay? And I think the big key is, again, we, we need to work within the system. We're not trying to destroy government and stuff. We're working within the system. And the first thing that means is it means voting. It really just is that basic. Paul doesn't talk about voting in here because he's not living in a democracy. But how do we abhor evil on the one side and hold fast to what is good and honor the government on the other? This is how we do it. It's not enough for us to just pretend that evil isn't happening. It is happening, but we can't fight against it like a bunch of lunatics doing acts of violence and evil. We work within the system. In a democracy, that means we vote. And can I just say one other thing? Did you know that voting entails more than just economics. I feel like today sometimes I talk to Christians and the only thing when they talk about politics is what is their economic position? As Christians, nowhere in the Bible does it say here that we are supposed to abhor evil economic policies and hold fast to good economic policies. What we have is God's law. We abhor evil because evil hurts people and we hold fast to what is good because what is good honors God and it is good for people. That means when we vote, we are within the system. That means one of the ways we abhor evil and stand for good is by voting. It means we pay attention and it's not just based on what is, how much money is so-and-so going to put in my pocket. What we care about is what does so-and-so think about issues that matter to God? What does so-and-so think about issues of morality, about family, about marriage, about euthanasia, about abortion? Actually, those things to God, bigger than economics. Did, do, do you actually believe that? So really, this is how, how do you do Romans 12 and 13 in democracy? One way is we vote, and we vote based on what really matters. That doesn't mean economics don't matter, but it does mean that what matters to God has to matter to us. And let me just say something else. 
Also, in a democracy like ours, you're not going to find people who are ideal, necessarily. And sometimes it's like, you know, Christians just fill up their hands. Well, uh, they're, just, they're just all bad, right? They're just all bad. We abhor evil, and we hold fast to what is good. In any incremental way, sometimes that means voting for a person who's going to advance evil less quickly. Sometimes that's what we're left with. Sometimes we're just voting for someone who's going to advance evil this fast as opposed to this fast. That's just what it means. Number two, we, on other important issues, we make our voices heard respectfully. We abhor evil and we respect the government. In a, in a democracy, that means on an issue like euthanasia, we can write letters, we can talk to people, we can influence respectfully. That's what we should do. We're not trying to get kicked out of Rome like those, that, those early Christians. And Paul's like, this is not what you should be known for. But we can do it respectfully. We can do it as part of the thing. And lastly, we need to, we need to have Daniels raised up. Just like Daniel was in a position of leader, leadership, we need Christians who are willing to do the hard thing and go out there and be leaders in the business community, in politics, in, the air, in, 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 in places of civic influence and teachers and principals. Of course we need Christians there. We're supposed to be salt and light. Absolutely. Now, how? Now the thing is, I know what some people think is like, I want to be, being a Daniel out there today, that's hard. Yeah, Daniel got sent to a lion's den. It was hard for him too, eh? Do you think it was easy for Daniel to be one of the most powerful leaders in the land in an extremely occultic, demonic uh, empire? Do you think that was easy for him? Absolutely not. But it was his calling. You say, well, I don't want to be, I don't, I don't want to be a Christian out there. I don't want to be soul light. I just want to keep to myself. I just want to be a Christian privately and go to heaven on my own and not really impact things. But here's the thing, that isn't our calling. We're not called to an easy life here on earth. We're called to pick up our crosses. We're called to advance his kingdom. It's not about us. It's not about us. It is hard. It will be hard to stand up in the cur current cultural climate. It will be hard to stand up and do right. It'll be hard to walk that line of what's, what's wise? How do I do it wise? How am I going to be strategic? How am I going to be kind? And how am I going to do this while there's constantly this pressure to not be Christian, to not hold to this truth. It will be hard. But we're not called to an easy life. And I want to finish Romans 13 with these verses. Verse 11, Paul says this, Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. That's supposed to be an encouragement. It's an encouragement for people whose lives are hard. People's lives are easier just trying to enjoy it. And Paul says, the thing that should encourage you to be salt and light when it's hard to be salt and light is every day we get closer to him actually coming back and he's going to be king and everything's going to be great forever. So the time of his appearing is nearer now than when we first believed. It's getting nearer and nearer all the time. And then he says this, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. It's time for us to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. We need to endure. It's a war out there. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray, and then we're going to get to watch these amazing testimonies and baptisms. Father, I just thank you. First of all, I thank you for our government, that we actually get to live in a democracy. That's amazing. 
There's a lot of horrible places to live in this world, and Canada is not one of them. Thank you for this country. Lord, we want to lift up our government today, and we pray that you would give them wisdom, that you would give them grace, that you would empower them to do good. And Father, I pray for us as Christians that you would make us salt and light, salt seasoned with grace and kindness and peace, but also seasoned with righteousness and holiness and a passion for your truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.